Hello, and welcome to Keeping Students in Mind, Understanding Student Mental Health Research, a collaborative podcast series brought to you by All Things Mental Health, Smarten and King's College London. I'm Jenna Luxon, and I'm a graduate from the University of York with a degree in Social and Political Sciences. And today I'm delighted to have Dr. Emma Broglia joining me. Emma is a postdoctoral researcher at the University of Sheffield, whose work looks at student mental health with a particular focus on clinical interventions and policy. Today, we're going to be focusing on Emma's work looking into mental health interventions in higher education and the impact on student outcomes. Starting by discussing Emma's recent project exploring referral pathways between university counselling services and the NHS, before moving on to consider why this relationship between the NHS and university services is particularly important for students with diagnosed mental health conditions. Emma, thank you so much for joining us today. Before we delve in, could you tell us a little more about your research and in particular, more about the project I just mentioned, looking at bridging the gap between university counselling services and the NHS? Hi, Jenna, and thanks for having me today. Um, So as you said, uh, a lot of my research tends to look at um, students, what we would say at the more clinical end. Um, So I work closely with uh, professional services embedded into universities. So things like counselling services, or it might be called a wellbeing or a mental health or disability service. But essentially, I work with staff and practitioners Um, to embed research into their practice, evaluate the services, see what's working, see what needs to be improved, and ultimately try to do research that leads to better services for students. So in particular, um, one of the projects that we've just finished, um, this is a two-year project that was funded by the Office of Students. This one was specifically looking at the service pathways that university services have with local um, mental health services, such as those available from uh, NHS, so the National Health Service in the UK, or also uh, third sector, so things like charity organisations and things like that. Basically, what we find, I'm sure um, you're not surprised, but what we find is that it's hard enough for students to come through the door if they decide they need help. And they're able to navigate the sort of complicated systems for getting through to university services. Mm. We find that there's a subset of students um, that perhaps need specialist help or longer term help or the type of support that might fall outside the remit of a university service. And so universities have relationships with other services that might be able to support students in that way. And so one of the things that this project tried to do was firstly, just characterise what are those partnerships? What do they look like? Which universities have them in place? Um, Understanding different models of working for trying to set up these partnerships, ultimately to improve these transitions between services, because we hear time and time again that students are repeating their stories. They might not go to the right service because they might not be clear as to which service they might want to go to. They might sit on multiple waiting lists. There's lots of issues there. But ultimately, it means that students aren't getting through to services quick enough. Whichever service it is they need to get to, they're not getting through quick enough. And so one of the things in which this project tried to do was to characterise what the current state of partnerships are, but then also learn if other universities wanted to build their partnerships or improve existing partnerships or evaluate them, what works uh, in terms of building these partnerships and how does it impact students? Yeah. That's really interesting. Thank you, Emma. Um, So what did you find through this work? Um, What are the the ways that that gap can be bridged between services? Well, we found quite a lot, actually, um, and some of it almost seemed 
like common sense so when we were writing the project yeah. up we were like okay so partnerships work by bringing staff together from different services and letting them share best practice we were like surely <laughs> we already knew this mm-hmm. and so some of it was was just a bit of going back to basics and seeing okay really looking at the nuances of what was there and what was missing yeah. So just to say from this research, we have developed a toolkit um, and uh, the toolkit we've devised into a series of domains. And we thought one of the key areas that came from this work is that there's a key uh, need to co-produce this work with students and consult staff. Because mm. what we found really surprising is that we almost take for granted um, the knowledge that students and staff have about all of the different services. So I suppose as researchers, we are working with all of these different staff um, from different services and students from different contexts. So this might be student service users or students who have never used the service before. But what we found from our research was that unless staff actually had the time and were supported by their institutions or their organisation, if the responsibility within their job role and the clarity is that it was their responsibility, unless those things were in place, we always took for granted that they just knew what other services were and what the roles were. And so one of our main findings was that there actually isn't clarity about what the roles are, um, not only in terms of professional services, so what is the role of a counselling service in a university? What mm. is the role of that service and how is how is that different to an NHS service? Because they do need to work together and it's good that they are working together, but it, it's difficult to figure out where one service ends and another one begins. And then when we look at how students view services, I mean, this is just what's going on in the background in terms of how we provision and structure services to make sure they can work together. But when we then talk to students, they have a completely different understanding, which perhaps isn't always the most accurate understanding. And that can contribute to barriers seeking help. So, for instance, one of the key areas of this work were concerns around data sharing. We're talking about very sensitive information here. So students might complete a clinical outcome measure, which is used to help to determine what type of support that might um, be most beneficial to them. And then from a service point of view, they will use that data to evaluate has it worked? Has the student got better? If not, where can we improve? Um, is there a potential for staff training here? So the data is really at the core of it. And it's really important that there are the right procedures in place. And we did find that there are some very good procedures and paperwork in place in these um, services, but they weren't being communicated back to students in terms of how that data was being handled. So I'm sure you've probably heard this time and time again, but one of the reasons as to why students might not feel comfortable approaching a mental health service or a counselling service, whether it be an NHS service or a university service, is that they don't know what's being done with that data. So they might be concerned that if they do ultimately end up receiving, say, counselling or group work in an NHS environment, for instance, some students will be concerned that that data might get back to their personal tutor, for instance, or the university will somehow know, especially for in-house services, because they have the identity of being from the university, which is Mm. a good thing because there's trust there. But then there's also the concern, okay, everyone in the university will then know, A, I'm seeking a service, B, what my issues are, or C, if I choose to take a leave of absence, then there's a sort of fear as to what is being done with that data. And so really simple things like working with students to figure out what the appropriate consent procedures are and what needs to be in place within the university itself. And that becomes more complicated when our universities are working with local NHS services. So Mm -hmm. one particular gap we found um, is when students perhaps go to A&E or a local hospital, whether it be for a mental health or a physical problem, 
if they go to an NHS service first, um, because of the policies and procedures in place and the fact that NHS services, the structure of them and the governance that make sure that they are a safe and effective service, those procedures are different to university standards. Um, this is something that we're trying to work with, not just us. Like a lot of people in both sectors have been trying to work on this for some time now. But we find that those perhaps don't align as much as they um, could um, in order to improve sort of students' journeys through through these services. And so what we find in the current um, state is that a student might go to a hospital or might go to A&E. They might receive some form of treatment or intervention and then they're discharged now, from a university point of view. Technically, that student will be back in the care of the university, but because there is no procedure in place to sort of close that feedback loop, universities might not be aware that the student has gone to A&E or that they've received an intervention from the NHS because that information or that data isn't getting back through to services uh, within the university. And so some people like this. They like that it's separate and they like that the NHS has, sort of has an identity separate from the university. But from a, sort of a student intervention point of view, it's really problematic because accessing that information or even having awareness of that information, um, the fact that a lot of professional staff working in our university services don't even know that a student might be on a particular medication or they might be registered with a GP outside the area, the fact that they don't know this information, it creates further delays into making sure that the student gets to the place that they want to get to or need to get to and it's the most appropriate. And so there's a lot of these gaps and barriers between communication, between information sharing, and there's a real concern there from students as to what is being used with that data. Yeah, yeah, that's great. That's really interesting. And it and it relates a lot to those feelings of fear and nervousness that students have, which prevents them from seeking help in the first place, be that from the NHS or from universities. Yeah, absolutely. And in terms of you asked earlier, some of the things that are working well in the work that we did. So just to explain the research that we did do, uh, we had a dedicated student co-production project um, that was led by my uh, colleague, uh, Kirsty Nisbet. She's a, a research assistant at UCL and now at the Anna Freud Centre. Um, she led the whole project where we recruited a student research team and they led, um, they basically conducted um, focus groups for students from all the different university partners taking part. So in the end, we had eight universities across five cities mm. taking part with the evaluation. So the project that we were running. And so we had a dedicated student co-production um, piece that worked with both users and non-users, so service users and non-users of NHS services and university services. And then we also mirrored that by doing focus groups of staff working in universities to get a, hopefully, a clear picture as to what was going on behind the scenes in terms of how services were being managed, but also getting opinions from students who have either experienced transition barriers between these services or those who, what we call like a perception group. So these might be students who haven't either felt the need to, to use a mental health service or have needed it and haven't felt willing or able to go to a service. Um, we want to know what their views are. Um, and what's really interesting is that working with students and staff to develop these consent procedures, these client contracts, these anything that's in place and shaping services and the decisions that are made about students. They essentially want ownership over that. You can understand that. Yeah, definitely. So we know that the demand for university mental health services in general has been increasing. 
Um, and with that, there's been a huge amount of pressure on universities to prioritise student mental health and well-being and to develop their support services for it. It's not uncommon in sort of student environments to hear of university services being described as having a sort of one size fits all approach. So where you have this diverse population of students with an equally diverse range of needs, all ending up being funneled into the same services. Would you agree with that description? Is that how you see things or how you've viewed services from your research or not and why? Um, I think that's a really interesting question. Um, and I think there's a few things within that that need um, sort of picking apart. Mm. Um, so first of all, one of the um, sort of objectives of this research, if you like, was to try to address that issue around uh, demand for university counselling services. Again, we're not the only researchers um, or team to try to address this. Um, so some of the research partners and organisations involved with this research included Universities UK, as well as um, Student Minds and also NHS England. Mm-hmm. And something that we've tried to be really clear about with the toolkit is that we're not trying to reinvent the wheel here. The toolkit is very much something to be used alongside some of the existing really brilliant frameworks that are already out there such as the Student Minds University Mental Health Charter um, and the Step Change Framework from Universities UK, really adopting this idea of a whole university approach. And actually all of these frameworks, policies, even the NHS long-term plan, they all suggest that if we develop um, partnerships between universities and local mental health psychological services, if we develop these partnerships, then that has capacity to build capacity in university services, because going with the idea of this one-size-fits-all model, although I'll come back to that, if we can have more routes into more types of support for students, not only does it promote choice, but it also means that we can perhaps cater to different needs. So not everyone will need counselling, not everyone will need group work or psychoeducation, or some people will be okay with self-help. Some people will need more than that. So it's not only about offering choice, but it's about offering more diverse routes into support that will attract, hopefully, different types of students from different backgrounds. And so if there are more routes into support, then we can see more students sooner And so this idea of partnership working with the NHS, um, that's one of the things that many of these frameworks talk about. They all say we can build capacity in university services by improving the decisions that are made around which students need to go to which service. Because if we don't have this bottleneck, so if we don't have students going to the same service and then sitting on a waiting list when perhaps half of them will end up not being referred into that service, they might be referred to another service, or perhaps they don't even need to be there, perhaps it was more helpful for them to go to the wellbeing service or disability service. If we have clarity around the decisions that are made as to where to send students, then students can ultimately get their support sooner, and we can hopefully try to get around these sort of access and transition issues that students are experiencing. And then the only other thing I wanted to say in terms of the one size fits all thing, I just want to say that I find really interesting that I feel quite privileged as a researcher working with different universities is that we almost get to capture that sort of global or that semi-national picture of understanding how services look in different universities. And something that I've really learned just from talking about this interview is that actually one student in one university, they will understandably have the perception that there is this one size fits all because they have access to the support from their university. 
But actually what we find, if we look at services in universities across the country, even globally in other countries, we find that the one size fits all actually isn't a thing. It isn't there. And that services will vary slightly to cater to their local need. And counterintuitively, that actually creates barriers for setting up these partnerships because a local GP practice, say in London, will look completely differently to a local GP practice in Sheffield. And even within a service, so we also work with Bristol, different universities in Bristol as a city will see different types of students and they will have different partnerships in place. So actually, because it's not a one size fits all model, it actually creates challenges for understanding, Okay, what models do work and what partnerships are in place, because there's lots of different ways of achieving the same thing. Right. That's really interesting. Yeah, you know, you're totally right about how from a student perspective, you only see what's happening at your university and what options you feel are available to you. And you also have that issue of perception that you mentioned before of the difference between what options are actually available and what you think is there. Um, Whereas as a researcher, obviously, you can you can see a broader picture. Other thing I wanted to touch on was this idea of university mental health services being I want to say overwhelmed, but at least in a huge amount of demand, has resulted in longer waiting times in many cases to receive support. And in tandem with that, services often having more of a short term focus, um, with some universities even placing a limit on the number of sessions sort of offered to each individual student. This is naturally a concern for students who perhaps require more long term support. Um, maybe those students who have a sort of diagnosed mental health condition. And by that, I mean students who maybe are taking medication for or attending talking therapies or in some way seeking regular medical attention for their mental health. This is a concern for them that these universities are having more of a short term focus. In your opinion, do university services need to adapt to cater for these students? Um, Do they need to be able to work to provide more sort of long term support? Or is that not in their remit in the first place? And should this rather be the role of the NHS to provide long term forms of mental health support? Again, really important and interesting question. And it's something that's been in the sector research for a long time now. Um, It's something that when I first started my PhD, I was like, oh, yeah, this is a really interesting question. I'll have the answer by the time I finish. And that was like seven, eight years ago. And it's still a question that we're like, why do we offer six sessions or where where did like where did what is short-term therapy? What's interesting is that when you look at counselling models, like say service models in other countries, um, is that they actually look at the UK and they count our um, services as very short-term. So for me, I I would think short-term is sort of six to 10 sessions. Mm. But when you speak to sort of universities in America, for instance, they're really impressed with the fact that services in the UK are able to achieve any change in that number of sessions because they work to a much longer. So they're working with more like 20, 25, 30 sessions. And so I just wanted to flag that because although I agree with what you're saying, it is right. Universities do work to a sort of short term model. I think the flip side of that is actually also recognising the really good work that university services are offering and NHS services the fact that they can achieve any change in we're only talking two three four sessions Um, so that's one thing that I find really interesting in terms of whether it's the responsibility of universities to offer this sort of longer term support firstly um, many of them do Um, so it's and understandably if you think about the student population 
and their mental health needs as like a bell curve. The majority of them will fall in the middle of that bell curve. That's where it peaks. And the two tails at the end, so at, at the one extreme, you've got those who have very uh, good well-being, very good mental health, perhaps will never need access um, to support in any way, academic support, mental health support, whatever. And then if you look at the tail at the other end, those are the individuals who might need help um, for a mental health problem. They might have diagnosed condition. They might also have a disability. But if we look at the fact that it's in the tails, it's only a small proportion of the of the student population. So although unfortunately I can't reference a paper to this, it's just anecdotal. But when you look at service reports over the years, counselling services tend to see around about 10 to 12 percent of the university population, student population. Now, that's still a very significant number when we power it up to how many like hundreds of students that actually represents. It is important. But I just wanted to give you that perspective, the fact that we're dealing with this sort of top tail, the 10, 10 to 12 percent who are the help seeking. end. then within that, you have the top tail of that group that might have a diagnosable mental health condition or might be needing to go to an NHS service or might need longer term support. So I think it's helpful to really think about like the different subgroups in the student population because often they're just seen as one big blob and actually when we talk about students and services or when we talk about services being overwhelmed and longer waiting lists although some of that is true it's just sometimes helpful to really see that we're not talking about the whole student population because I think sometimes that can add some unnecessary anxiety when we're thinking about all of these students in need. That's not to take away from the fact that these students are in need, um, but I think this is something that really needs to be clarified moving forward. So through these partnerships, there needs to be clarification as to where a university service finishes when an NHS service starts or if it's a charity within third sector. But I don't think it should be seen as a straight line. I think it should be seen as a loop because students ultimately come back into the university And if we think beyond university, they ultimately become part of the working uh, sort of citizens in society. And so I think a lot of research, we're limited with how long we can collect data or how long we can engage with students or participants. But actually, it's not just when is it no longer the university's responsibility and when is it then someone else's? It's also that might change. It might then become the university's responsibility again at a later stage, or it might then become the services, another service's responsibility. So I think it's about closing these feedback loops and partnerships is something that could really help sort of close this cycle because it's not clear cut that universities should or shouldn't offer this long-term support because some of them do offer long-term support. So that might be 10, 20 sessions to a select few students who really need it. Because then also the alternative is if we say it's not appropriate for universities to fund these types of services, well, the alternative is the even longer waiting list of the NHS. And so, again, it's not a question for me to answer, but I think there's a real responsibility that we need to figure out there. And this is something that came from this research that actually some of the students who are still falling through the gaps are those who do fall outside of the remit of university services, whatever the need. Um, but they're not yet receiving help from the NHS because of the waiting list. And so what can we do for those students and what can the university do for those students by working with NHS services to make sure that those students aren't forgotten and still have some form of support whilst they're waiting for these long-issue services? Yeah, definitely. You're right because you, you spoke about there about some of the positives and it's easy to forget 
when you're when you're thinking about these services and, and you hear the narratives of, that they're totally overwhelmed and the waiting list is so long and it's easy to forget about the positives and about how many services are available and also and it's important to talk about that because like you say it can deter people from you know, reaching out and finding help wherever that may be from if you're put off by by waiting times um which are a huge issue but there are also positives and um and the work that you're doing will certainly help thank you so much for joining us today emma it's been an absolute pleasure to have you and it's been fascinating to hear about your work thanks jenna